the real question of the whole podcast. This, this might actually need to be the title. Has gravel racing gotten too big for its britches? Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the first full-length episode of the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and back with me in the studio today, we have my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, Dylan Johnson, and Drew Dillman. This week, we'll be hearing from Drew and Dylan on their recent experiences down at the Mid-South Gravel Race. Drew completed the Mid-South Double on his first attempt, and Dylan found himself in the mix during Saturday's 100-mile gravel race. We'll hear about some of the preparation that went into this event, how it played out, and what's coming up next for Dylan's gravel race season. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a specific training-related topic in the future, drop us an email at info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast. All right, let's get into it. All right, what's up, fellas? How are we doing today? Excellent. Yeah, can't complain. Better than a couple days ago. <laughs> Better than a couple days ago. Uh, yeah, so we're, uh, we're getting together here, kind of pulled a last-minute show together to talk about Mid-South. Uh, while it's still fresh on everyone's mind, thought we'd get together and just hear some insight from a couple guys that were in the thick of things. Um, we've got Drew Dillman, who did the double. We've got Dylan Johnson, who only raced the bike. But um, yeah, both these guys were towards the front of the race. So we're going to hear some fresh insight uh, and talk a little bit about race preparation and things that go into, uh, yeah, just uh, good race performance. Sweet. Where, where do we start? Well, I think we should start with the, the winner of the double, man. Let's hear it. Oh, man. <laughs> and for our audience, can you explain what the double is if people don't yeah, know? Yeah, Drew, can you give us a little <laughs> bit of uh, info on what the double is and why you even wanted to do the double? Yeah, the double is a 50K run. So for all of those non-whatever metric people, that's 32 miles. So... um do a marathon and then do six more miles. So, uh, I had a lot of people this weekend ask me like, Oh, are you a runner? And I'm like, no, first run. <laughs> I did a 10 mile trail run two years ago. Um, other than that, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a 50 K run on Friday. And then the very next day you do the mid South 100 mile gravel race. And then you take your combined time of both events, smash them together and whoever has the smallest number wins. And Drew, do those two events take about the same amount of time? Uh, yeah, pretty close. So um, I did the run in 3.53 and the bike in five, just under five and a half. So um, yeah, you're looking at a four hour and a five and a half hour. So yeah, pretty pretty long. Both days are pretty long. They're like the same, it's the same effort though, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. If, we, if we we're going to talk TSS, my TSS was almost identical for both because mm-hmm. uh, for a run, there's no coasting in running. You know, like there's a lot of coasting in 100 miles, but uh, yeah, there's no coasting in a, in a four hour run. I was, I was on for four hours nonstop, basically. Yeah. So, Drew, everyone's probably familiar with the mid-south gravel race not too many have probably heard of the mid-south gravel running race um 
are there are there runners who show up just for the 50k run or are most of the competitors doing the double yeah i was surprised most of them were doing the double um which was surprising to me i think i finished seventh overall and that's like total and i was like oh that must mean i thought maybe i was leading the double um but in fact there were six dudes ahead of me so like there was only one person ahead of me that wasn't doing the double um, at, the, at the end of the run. So a lot of them were doing the double. Um, and the, the one guy who wasn't doing the bike race was, I think, like a professional runner. He went out super hard. I think he had a seven-minute lead at one point. Um, they were following his – I think his name was Eric London. And they were following him on the – on the live feed on the Instagram, the whole race. And then he just completely detonated. I don't think he was eating anything. And then he just like totally blew up and ended up finishing like fifth overall. But because he was the only one not doing the double, he actually won the 50 K even though he was like the fifth one to cross the line. So, Mm -hmm. but besides him, everybody else that was around me was, was doing the double. I wonder if he was looking for like a low consequence race to, try out a like a nutrition or a pacing strategy you know like maybe he's like a a super ultra runner or a super marathoner and wanted to do like a, a glycogen burn down test <laughs> and i don't know when they showed him on the on the videos i'm like man this guy's cj was like no nah, i don't think he wins and i'm like no nah, it looks like he's gonna win cj like this dude's moving and sure enough he just blows up loses a seven minute lead gets passed by multiple people and then crawls in for, and he still beat me, but yeah, wow. I think he went out trying to do like six thirty pace from the start, mm-hmm. which is nuts. So, so Drew, do you know of the other competitors that were doing the double were most of them like you, where they're a cyclist first and then they just hopped in the run or there were there some who are runners who then decided to hop in the gravel race? So that was like the biggest thing on my mind between the races i'm thinking i really hope that i'm a cyclist and all these other dudes are runners because then the second day would play into my favor and i would you know make up all that time um and i think it turned out that the two guys that i was on the podium with were actually actually triathletes and so they were good at running and biking uh, which i hadn't considered i hadn't even that hadn't even like crossed my mind that maybe a triathlete would do this um so yeah, the, both of those guys were triathletes and I was, uh, those were the only other two guys that I talked to, but I was definitely a cyclist just doing the run and they were, I guess you could say good at both. Mm. I, I mean, that's all sort of unsurprising to me because let's be honest, I bet you the vast majority of cyclists hate running. Like it's a, yeah. it's a thing that you hear all the time, right? You know, or you meet a lot of, uh, like elite cyclists who came from running because they got hurt too much yeah i don't know too many people that enjoy running but i I do i've always liked running um yeah i don't know why it's just holds a special spot in my heart i guess i i was talking with someone uh over the weekend about this actually and uh we were just talking about like different backgrounds that you know come into cycling and what you know performance level we see and I said that if I could curate the best cyclist, like from someone who's off the couch, like if we were just taking an athlete off the couch and we wanted to turn them into the best cyclist, 
I would have them run for probably five years first. Because I think running, there's so much more suffering involved in running. Like, it's just so much harder. Um, like, I think it mentally makes you tougher. And it's just, it's so much harder on your body that you almost always have to be running in zone two, like, unless you're, like, really pushing yourself. So you just build such a bigger aerobic base, I think, um, versus, like, more, uh, like, stochastic effort in cycling that's feasible day in, day out. Um, but then they would probably hate running so much afterwards that all they'd want to do is ride their bike super hard. And it'd be awesome. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge this, this concept <laughs> and, and say that I, I think maybe the better uh, like base sport to build an incredible cyclist um, would be cross-country CrossFit. skiing. No. Mm. Cross-country skiing. And, and let me tell you why. One, uh, I, you know, I would bet you that a lot of runners you know because of the impact involved in it don't even make it to cycling like the ones that we see are the ones who kind of like made it out still in one piece i bet you there's tons who start running and then they just don't do anything now and they're huge um but (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding um but cross-country skiing lower impact right i think even more muscle mass involved which is going to like correspond to like pushing your vo2 max even higher right because there's like more working tissue but three and most importantly cross-country skiers really learn how to use their glutes well um which mm. i think can make a, a fantastic cyclist you know because yeah a lot of runners and a lot of cyclists are, both are like really bad at using their glutes um which i think holds somebody back in the long run um but if you do cross-country skiing first you become you know you develop a really good posterior chain, which I think would, would be unique. And you just, it would just translate to more power on the bike. Posterior chain is just a fancy way of saying your butt, right? Backside, whole backside. Your, your whole backside. backside. Yeah. Your backside. So, so Andrew, I, I agree that I, I take my stance back. If I, if I could curate the best cyclist, I would take someone off the couch who lived in the North and then put them on cross-country skis first. I, I did do a video on cross-training and how it affects cycling performance. And in the literature, it seems that the sport that translates the best to cycling is cross-country skiing. You know, if you were to if you were to train for a bike race, but you couldn't ride your bike, your best bet would be to get on cross-country skis. Yeah. And to Adam's point, if you really just want to like induce suffering maybe you should have them do like ufc fighting first and then cycling (laughs) you know what i'll say you know what i'll say about that i ran cross country in high school and at the high school level it's it's 5k uh running races and to this day i don't think i have ever ever pushed myself into a deeper place than than those 5k running races there were certain races where i crossed the finish line and i collapsed and i couldn't stand up i mean it was it was that i mean i went that deep um i mean i've gone deep in bike races before but i you know i don't know there's some there's something about that duration and about running itself that that you know is particularly painful I don't think it has to do with with the exercise modality or uh, 
you know, even uh, the distance, the duration. I think it all comes down to, um, like, your training age at that point. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I, I like running a lot, and I'll watch a lot of, um, you know, like, world-level mile races, which is, like, I would argue even a more brutal, mm-hmm. um, you know, discipline of running. And these people, you know, they finish the mile. You know, that they're you can tell they're just sprinting as hard as they can on top of a very, very hard VO2 effort, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we all sort of know that feeling. And they cross the finish line, and they're breathing hard for about 30 seconds, and then they're just chill. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it really just comes down to, like, you know, you're such a well-trained endurance athlete now. You know, you've, like, built, like, so much right. hardware and software into your body that you just... You know, and it's like, um, you know, like I'm probably never going to see the max heart rates again that I saw when I was, you know, uh, first first riding or running or, you yeah. know, doing whatever. And like part of that is age, but. Yeah, that's a good point. High school would have been the start of my endurance, uh, endurance sport career, I guess. So. Well, one of the biggest things, this is. Yeah, one of the biggest things that I learned firsthand from doing this from the last three months of trying to train like a runner. So I was actually like doing workouts during the week where I was doing uh, running to the high school track or going to the trails near my house and doing like one mile intervals and like actually doing running intervals, which I don't I don't normally do. Um, And then long runs on the weekend, plus on top of that, you know, still trying to maintain cycling uh, base season training. So, but the one thing that I can speak to that you hear so much in running is the rate of injury. I mean, like even when I went to go get my shoes at the local running shop, the girl that was there, uh, helping me find the right shoes, even she like at the moment was like, yeah, I've been injured. And I was like, Oh, how long? And she's like, Oh yeah, three or four years. She hasn't been able to race in like cause she's just in this constant m- mode of injury. So, yeah. and I'm thinking, man, what's wrong with runners? Like, why do they get injured all the time? And then of course, firsthand experience, like my IT band flares up like a month out from the, from the race and I can't run. And so I had to skip my two longest runs that I had planned. I had planned to do a marathon and a 28 mile run before the mid South, but I didn't do either one of those. So my longest run was 21 miles. And it was like, five weeks before the race which was a little bit I didn't want to really taper for five weeks um but that's kind of what ended up happening was because I uh, it was like my knee would start hurting because of my I think my I I never got it like diagnosed but I'm I'm almost certain it was a tight IT band and the muscles up my hip and so my knee was hurting and so uh so I basically just pulled the plug on almost all my training on the on for running and just started to focus on the bike um, hoping that by the time the race showed up, my knee would feel okay. And luckily it did. It hurt that night, but during the race it was fine. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, injury is definitely a real thing in running. Yeah. Back in Andrew, high school, so back in high school, I, uh, when I ran cross country, I mean, I'm 15 and 16 years old, right. Should have super healthy joints at the end of cross country season. I was walking around like an old man. Like I was, <laughs> it was, it was never bad enough that I couldn't run, but I would need a warm up for 30 minutes just to get to the point where running was comfortable every day. And then just walking from class to class, I just remember 
I was like, dude, I need a cane and I'm 16 mm-hmm. years old. <laughs> so it's, de- it's, it's definitely a thing in running injury. Yeah, If you saw the video I posted after the run or CJ, I was like, CJ video me walking. Cause it was like, I wasn't even, I wasn't like faking that at all. I mean, I was like legit mm-hmm. limping for the rest of the day. It, it was brutal. Yeah. So, Drew, can you talk a little bit about how you mixed running in to your training leading up to the Mid South? So, the the run was something new for you that you you know you said you'd done a twelve mile trail race before, but otherwise, uh, probably only done a little bit of running for cyclocross training. So, can you talk about mm-hmm. how you built up your running uh, stamina while also uh, you know improving your fitness on the bike? Yeah. Um... If you follow me on YouTube, and I hope you do, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of this guy named Matt Fitzgerald, and he has a, has a book, um, I actually have it on my desk right now, called Brain Training for Runners, um, and it's one of the thicker books that he's written. Uh, it's really good if you're just an athlete. Um, it talks about the whole, the whole, like how your brain plays a part in training and racing, um, but then a, a huge part of the book is actually him laying out his method of training for runners. So, um, so I kind of used, I know this is like, you hear about coaches who just pull something from a magazine and that's their new training method. But, uh, since I'm not a running coach, I felt comfortable doing that. So I basically just pulled his book off my shelf and looked at some of the workouts he had in the, in the book and, uh, and tried to replicate that. It's a, so he, so he only goes up to a marathon um, my race was 32 miles. So I just did his marathon plan and I started basically at the midway point because I had been running throughout the cross season. So I had a little bit of a running background. Um, and I didn't want to like waste too much time cause I only had 12 weeks of training before the event. I got in in December right after cross nats. So I knew I had 12 weeks to train for this, which is definitely like less time than optimal. Um, but I was pretty confident with like just having already a huge aerobic base from all the years of cycling that all I had to do in my mind was like get my body used to running for that long. So, uh, pretty much like immediately after my transition period, after cross, I started running, um, started out like 10 miles, 12 miles, 15 miles, 18 miles. And then I think my longest run was 21 miles. And I was doing those every Saturday and on, on the weekends, I was trying to replicate exactly what the Mid-South double is, which is a long run on day one and then a long ride on day two. So I'd always do my long run on Saturday and then do a long ride on Sunday to try and get used to that fatigued feeling on the bike. Because um, I had multiple people ask me like, oh, have you been doing a lot of bricks? And I'm like, no, the brick, a brick is actually the opposite of what I'm training for. Um, a brick would be to ride and then run. And that's, that's not how the Mid-South is. So, so I didn't do any bricks at all. Um, and then, yeah, just during the week I did, I basically did like one really solid block of training before the IT band flared up. And and I was doing some 400s on the track, which I've never really done track workouts. I never did running in high school. So I never like got to experience like those track workouts with like high school teams so that was pretty cool to go out and like do these hard workouts on a track, like one lap, not all out, but like really hard pace around the, uh, around the track. 
Um, so that was pretty cool. I did that for three or four weeks. Uh, and then it was the base season for cycling. So my on the bike riding was pretty minimal, like intensity. I was just trying to get in long rides and some leading up to the event, like the event, the last month or so I've been doing more and more tempo, but, um, besides that, not, not much on the bike. And then, and then also trying to mix in with all of this, some strength training too, because I know how important that is for my cycling over the summer. So definitely trying to juggle like all these things at once was hard. Like, Oh, what day do I run? And then if I'm fatigued, when do I do the gym and and all that? So it was definitely like trying to fit all the pieces into a one week slot was, was pretty tough, but, uh, yeah, it was fun. I, I mean, I enjoy that. I think that's what makes coaching exciting. So Drew, so you mentioned that in December was when you found out you got into the Mid-South Double. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the application process looks like for that? Like, how did you decide that you wanted to do this double? So you wanted to run your bike or you want to run and then um, do the bike race the day after. Um, for anyone who's like interested in maybe doing the double mm. after hearing your story, like how would they go about trying to get into an event like that? Well, follow, follow the Mid-South on like Instagram and pay attention to when they open up their registration. Uh, I don't even think it's like you register. I think you have to get put into this thing called the randomizer because so many people want to do this event that they can't let everybody do it. And so you have to get uh, like randomly selected. And I missed all of that, um, all of because I was in the middle of cross season. So I was like totally focused on racing cyclocross. And then when I, when I had decided I wasn't going to race cyclocross worlds and just start training for base season, um, I had thought about this event and I honestly, I don't know what, like what initially sparked it, but I know that for the longest time I've wanted to run a marathon, like the year that I quit cycling at a high level, I was going to run a marathon and try to do so like sub three hour pace. And so I think I just got to the point where like, man, I'm only getting older. So like, why wait? Um, so I was like, I'm just going to do it. And it kind of works out that I could do the double in March and then still race crits over the summer. Uh, cause there's not much crit racing happening right now. So I have plenty of time to recover and I kind of just considered it a part of my base season training. So I did put a lot of emphasis on it, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm hoping that it was just a big block in my, in my, uh, base season. But yeah, you want to pay attention to that mid South, registration page because I missed it. So I actually didn't get into the event. I ended up just buying somebody's registration from them. Um, and I noticed that the closer you get to the event, more and more people are selling their registration because they realize, okay, I'm not ready for this, especially the double. Like a lot of people were trying to sell their double registration, like the month leading up to the event. Um, so even if you do miss registration, you, there is a, there's a chance that you can still get in and they, there's a Facebook page called like the mid South transfer forum. And that's where all of that goes down where you can buy people's registration from them. How'd you do Drew? How did, how did the, where did you finish? <laughs> uh, seventh place in the run overall. And with a 7.24 pace, which is pretty good. My, pay, my fast, goal pace yeah. was like 7.15s. And I did do most of my miles were 7.15s or faster. But my last two miles were like 8.30 and 8.40 because I like hit a wall. Everybody talks about like, oh, you'll hit a wall 
at mile, like usually in the marathon, it's like mile 22. For as long as I can remember, people always have said like mile 22 is when you hit the wall. And mile 22 went and came, mile 26.2 came and went and uh, no wall. But when I hit mile like 30, like right when you're going into town, like you'd think like the adrenaline would kick up and you'd finish strong. I mean, that's when I hit the wall and was like, oh, snap, like. So I didn't, I didn't get past the entire race either, which I was pretty proud of. Um, I did, I was passing people the entire race, even up to like mile 25, I was still passing a few guys here and there. Uh, but one guy passed me about a mile from the finish and he was the only person that passed me the whole race. So I finished seventh in the run and then 36th, I think in the ride. Um, but if you combine those two times, um, I did win the double but by only 20 seconds wow. and it was, and only 40 seconds separated the top three. Like all three of us were within 40 seconds of each other, which is insane. Like, did you guys have like different color, uh, name plates or number plates or anything? So you could differentiate who was in the double versus who was just in the gravel race. Yeah. We had talked about that after the race. Cause I was trying to think the, our, our, our number plates said the double, but only like this big down in the bottom. So like a really small little word double down at the bottom. So I was like, CJ, did you see any other doubles? And she's like, how would I know? And I was like, I pointed at my number and she's like, no way. There's no way I would have seen that little word. Um, so I, I mean, basically we had no idea. I didn't know what they looked like because I didn't see them the day before in the run and they didn't know what I looked like. And so the way it played out is they actually beat me by 15 minutes. Both of them beat me by 15 minutes in the run. And I beat them by 15 and a half minutes in the bike. And so that's, that's, so we were never like next to each other in the race. I don't think, um, except for probably near the start, but. Do you think, uh, people doing the double corresponded to shorter socks? Oh, <laughs> Um, like well, you can always tell a runner or a triathlete because they they wear these tiny little socks. It's such so bizarre. Like, no <laughs> Every, yeah. Everyone was wearing leg warmers, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, but if yeah, they were wearing their leg warmers over their socks, mm. both of these guys they when we be were at the uninitiated, <laughs> both of these guys at the finish line, I did take a good look at them, and I was like, they don't look like they look like legit cyclists. I uh, if I was if I was riding behind them, I wouldn't have thought, oh. I don't want to be behind this try. <laughs> One thing that I notice about like runner morphology that's really distinct from like the cycling body type is that they tend to have really narrow hips. Because um, to mm. be a good runner, you know, like an optim an optimized runner, you want to have like a low Q angle. So you want your femurs to kind of dangle straight down as opposed to kind of coming in. Whereas a lot of male cyclists have you know wider hips. In relative terms, right? Because um, so, that's almost Drew, like a, an advantage there. So, Drew, it's a very good thing that you won by 20 seconds and didn't lose by 20 seconds because if you had lost by 20 seconds, you would be hearing an earful from me about all the things that you could have done to go Dude, 20 seconds you, faster. You have no idea. <laughs> I could list off 20 things right now that I could have done that would have lost the race if I had done it differently. Like... Even just rolling into town, I was thinking to myself, man, it would suck if I lost by five seconds. And so I was like sprinting. Mm -hmm. Like that last adrenaline kick, this is on the bike. That last adrenaline kick was like, well, I might as well just use it while I got it. And so I was sprinting through town. 
uh, ran a couple stop signs. I'm pretty sure a police officer like sirened me and I'm like, don't care. I got a race to win. (laughs) And I'm just like sprinting. And then to find out that it came down to 20 seconds, the guy that got second said he dropped his chain once Mm -hmm. and he said he had to stop and fix that. And he said, that was the race right there. I'm like, Dude, so many things could have yeah. been the race if it was twenty seconds. I was uh, I was more referring to like marginal gains types that type things. Like if you had yeah, wha- knew, if you had I waxed knew, your chain, or if you had been wearing a more arrow jersey, or if you had arrow bars, or an arrow helmet, or all of those things. Yeah, yeah you should have no. worn an arrow helmet. What were you? Well, I mean, the Oakley helmet is pretty arrow. It doesn't have a lot of vents, does it? Um, I think the helmet you were wearing is like a. It's kind of an arrow hybrid helmet. So yeah, I think it is in the middle. Um, you need a like yeah, a full teardrop helmet. You need like a oh yeah, right. You need a visor too. The visor is at least twenty seconds. Well, <laughs> I did take your advice. I ran the two by instead of the one by. Um, I true. forwent. I forwent having a power meter so that I could have a two by. You yeah. Um, I wonder I if I, did the right uh, I wonder if seeing your power data when your legs felt so terrible like that would have actually been. Uh, a bad probably thing. yeah i knew that like i think if i went yeah if i went over threshold at all um i could feel it like immediately because like i was i was hurting within the first couple of hills that we hit and i could feel the guys on the front were picking up the pace i was i was already hurting like yeah as soon as we as soon as the pace picked up because it's not like you're setting any power records that day anyway so and my FTP that day was probably like lower than what it normally is. So like mm-hmm. my FTP is normally 360. It was probably like 320 that day just because of where my fitness was after the run. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. So let's, let's transition into the gravel race on Saturday. So both these guys, Drew and Dylan, uh, did a gravel race. We heard about Drew a little bit. Dylan, what, uh, how was the gravel race for you, man? That was good. It was my uh, it was my first time doing mid south. I'd heard a lot about it. Um, it snowed the day before on Friday, so Drew was actually running in the snow, and I was very worried that it was going to be a mud fest like it had been the last time they had the race. Uh, turns out it wasn't it wasn't very much snow. It was maybe an inch, and it melted very quickly. And there were very few muddy sections of the course. Um, there was one really bad money section where there were a bunch of photographers taking a bunch of pictures. So maybe if you were to just look at the, the race photos, you'd think it was worse than it was, but that section was, I don't know, 50 feet maybe, (laughs) um, before it dried up and it was fine. And the group that I was with, we all just, we all just ran that section except for Payson. Payson had some sneak line way up on the grass through a bunch of tall grass and he was he was the first one out of that section but other than that everyone just just ran that section what um when you found when you thought it was gonna be muddy what precautions did you take what precautions i don't know I didn't like, what did a, you go and do the day before the race tell everybody did you oh i, I did buy you brought i did paint scraper <laughs> what like the classic the classic mid-south tool right that was that was always the lore that yeah i like, i did buy one of those and then i like forgot a, to uh I, I bought one of those and I forgot to put it in my jersey pocket. So uh, whatever. I, scraper. So I didn't I didn't bring mountain bike shoes to the race because I just thought I wouldn't need them. And then I heard about how and then it and then there was an inch of snow on the ground and the roads were disgusting Friday morning. So I was like, 
I need mountain bike shoes. I'm going to have to run. And, uh, so I bought some mountain bike, some cheap mountain bike shoes at the local bike shop, ended up not even using them because I pre-rode and realized I wasn't going to have to do very much running at all. In fact, it was, it was pretty much only that section. And then one, one sort of Creek section at mile 60 that you had to run for 10 feet. Uh, so I just, I just ran my road shoes with mountain, with a mountain bike pedal adapter, which is what I was planning to use anyway. Um, but now I've got Did you a, buy tires too? Or did you No, I was thinking about buying tires, but I didn't oh, end okay. up buying tires. Which I'm glad because I wouldn't have I don't think I would have used them. I think my tires were fine, except for the fact that the front tire was was not uh didn't have enough puncture protection. But <laughs> um so so yeah, I, I I guess I wasn't expecting the snow and then I felt a little underprepared and then I went and pre rode and I felt I felt prepared again. So, <laughs> hey, so a quick quick question for like those of us who aren't big time gravel racers: um, Do do most top level gravel guys or like the guys in the lead group? What what proportion of them are on road pedals versus mountain pedals? Does it depend on the course? Mm-hmm. Does it just depend on their background? Yeah, it it does depend on the course, um, and probably depends a little bit on their background too. I mean, most mountain bike racers are probably on mountain bike pedals, and you know, if if it's a road racer, it's probably. I would say the majority of people are on mountain bike pedals. It's probably depend. It 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 does depend on the course because if there's going to be running, uh, or creek crossings where you got to walk or any, anything where you have to get off the bike and walk, then probably most people are going to do mountain bike pedals. But in a race where there's not a lot of that, it might be 20%, um, are on road pedals. Maybe so less. The question then for me is like, if, if you knew you weren't going to have to get off your bike, mm-hmm. um, and you didn't have a preference, like in terms of road or mountain pedals, like based on your background, do you, do you think you'd be better off on road pedals? Like, is that where your head goes? I use road pedals if I don't have to get off the bike. Um, Comfort, I mean, it, power. I, so, yeah, so I guess there's this question of do, so road pedals obviously have a bigger platform. And I guess the question is, does that lead to better power transfer? I'm very skeptical that, that that is actually the case, um, mainly because there's some there's been research done on um, on like people using flat pedals versus people using clipless pedals, and at least at a steady state on an indoor trainer, flat pedals didn't seem to be more efficient, which is completely mind blowing for most cyclists. Um, I, I could be wrong about this and I, and I haven't looked into it super deeply. I don't even know if there's, there's studies addressing it, but I, I would be skeptical that there's more power transfer, uh, with road pedals. And, and as far as which one's going to be faster road shoes are generally lighter. So I guess there's that, but then of course it depends on which shoes you're comparing. I mean, there's heavy road shoes, there's light, light mountain bike shoes. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of factors involved. It's kind of like, which road pedals are you comparing to which, which mountain bike pedals? So, Dylan, so what is like, what's the marginal gain you're going for? Why not just run the same shoe pedal combo year round and just be super comfortable with that? Um, I mean, I, I run road shoes just because they're lighter. 
that's pretty much it. And so do I, you so, so do you run road shoes m- the majority of the year, regardless yeah. of the discipline? Then okay, yeah, and so and I'll do I'll do road shoes with road pedals if I don't have to get off the bike, and then I'll run road shoes with Crank Brothers mountain bike pedals and the three hole to two hole cleat adapter if I have to get off and it's got to be a really crazy race with a lot of running or hiking for me to run mountain bike shoes. So, so two final things on the topic of uh, road versus mountain shoes for gravel racing. Uh, the first is I, I would recommend to all of our listeners out there to never do not change these things anywhere near race day and practice mm-hmm. on both because um, you can really mess up your fit given there's like a difference in the pedal stack, right? Yep. So you can, you could have the wrong saddle height going from one to the other. But the other thing I want to say is just a quick shout out to Scott McGill, our uh, fellow ignition coach, co coach, um, who, who raced a cycle cross race this year, uh, <laughs> go cross on, on road shoes <laughs> in pedals. I, I yeah. saw him do that impressive. on day one. And he beat me, and I was like, "He, I am. Why do I have two pairs of shoes?" And so I went to him and I said, "You need these more than I do." And I gave him my second pair of shoes, and he raced those this, the rest of the season. Well, I'm disappointed that he changed. Uh, I was really, I was really, you know, was there uh, was there much the said, was there much running at that race? No, but he said that every time he had to get off and get back on. Uh, it was so hard to clip back in because those adapters are kind of funny. Um, he said it was really hard to clip in. Yeah. Oh, so he wasn't on road pedals. No, he had the like adapter that Dylan was talking about. Uh, I thought he was on road pedals. You just ruined it. Oh, sorry. Sorry. But it's still like just as he made it sound like it, it it was even harder to clip in than road pedals. Cause at least on road pedals, it's like once you find the side, you clip in, but yeah. He said it was really hard to find the spot to clip in. Mm-hmm. So Dylan, so uh, let's go back to how your race went. Um, tell us a little bit about like the dynamics of the front group. I'm assuming you're in the front group. Um, how did it play out compared to what you expected it to? And uh, how did the race go? I mean, where did you find yourself for the majority of the race? Yeah, so... I I knew that Mid-South had come down to a sprint finish before. Uh, in fact, Drew was in the sprint finish for the win a couple years ago. I don't know what year exactly that was, and he got third. Um, and the competition at Mid-South has only, got, has only increased since then. So I, I was anticipating a sprint finish, and I guess my, my tactic going in was I'll try to I'll try to just stay with the front group until the sprint finish, and then I'll see what I can do in the sprint. I don't consider myself a sprinter, but maybe if it's a select enough group, uh, you know, I might have a chance. Who knows? Um, that's not really what ended up happening. What ended up happening is that probably around mile 30, um, this guy named Chase who rides for, I don't, I don't, it's this gravel team that's Mazda, sponsored by Lauf. Lauf. Yeah. Yeah, um, they had a bunch of riders out there, and they're really strong. He so he didn't even so it, it, we're around mile thirty, and we're you know we're in a probably probably a group of twenty, maybe more, and 
he he doesn't attack. He just does kind of a hard pull. And I was like, well, uh, and no one was really like they were just kind of letting him go. And I was like, he's not even attacking. I'm just going to get on his wheels so we don't let a guy go off the front for no reason. Um, so I got on his wheel and probably after 30 seconds, I look back and we've got, you know, we've got a gap. Um, so I, at that point, I really didn't want to do a two man breakaway with, with 70 miles left in the race, especially since the last, the last 30 miles of the race ish was, was mostly headwind. Um, it just didn't bode well for us. So I let him do probably 70% of the work until we got to probably the halfway point, mile 50-ish. They were telling us that we had three minutes on the group behind. And I was like, three minutes? Like, we could make this thing work. Um, so I started I started contributing a little bit more then. But it actually wasn't that long after, uh, after that that the – the main group behind caught us. I think they caught us maybe around mile 60 or 65. And, um, my leg, my legs still felt good. I was like, well, even though I may have burned a couple matches in this, in this breakaway, I could, I could probably still hang with the front group until the sprint finish. And then I'll just, I'll just see what I can do. Cause that was my, that was my plan a anyway. Um, unfortunately though, after that, I realized that I had a slow leak in my front tire so I did, I thought, okay, if I just hit this with a CO2 real quick, you know, I'll have a, uh, I'll have a 30 second gap to close. That shouldn't be too hard, but, um, I, I underestimated how hard that would be because <laughs> it was like 15 riders versus one rider, it, massive headwind. I couldn't close the gap. They just kept gaining time on me. Fortunately, there was another rider on the cinch team that I think he had tire problems around the same time I did, and we hooked up and we started working together. But the two of us could not close that gap, and they they just they just rolled away. Um, and I think I had to hit the tire with a CO two again, probably with ten miles to go, and I lost that cinch rider. Uh, we were catching people that were getting dropped by the main group, so I think by the finish, I I uh, I got twelfth. So, so Dylan, so when you found yourself in that kind of early break that you didn't plan on being in, a uh, couple questions. So did you know, I think his name was Chase Wark. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know of him before that? And like, was that a rider that you felt comfortable being in a breakaway with? Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know who he was. Uh, had absolutely no idea how strong he was. He, he proved to be really strong because he... He actually, I, I, want, I want to say he got sixth or something. Like he was in a break for a long time doing most of the work and still got, uh, still did well in the sprint finish. Um, uh, Cole Patton did a, sol- did a solo move with five miles to go in one. But after that, it was like a 10 person sprint and he, he did decent in the sprint to, uh, salvage a pretty good result even even after being in a break for most of the day. So he's a really strong rider, um, and it's he's definitely somebody to look out for in future races. So so going back to it, so if you had known who he was, if you like had the you know um, aftersight to 
to realize that you're with a you know pretty strong rider, w- would you have tried to contribute more earlier on to make that move stick, or do you still feel like uh, there there was a pretty slim chance that that move would have would have uh, stuck to the line? Yeah, so you know, hindsight in bike racing is always twenty twenty, right? I think if I could reverse time and go back and do the race again, what I would have done would be stick to plan A. Just let I just let Chase go off the front, and I would. I would have a run a, a more puncture resistant front tire um, <laughs> so that I didn't have those flat issues. And B, I would have stuck to my original plan, which was stay with the front group until uh, 10 miles to go. Maybe I would have seen if I had enough gas in the legs to do some sort of, some sort of move. Uh, or I would have just, just tried to, you know, roll the dice in the sprint finish. One I don't thing think I will that. say, just kind of bringing in some road experience here, is that depending on your rider type, I've actually found that sometimes being in the breakaway can can make for like an easier day given mm-hmm. a certain profile because, um, you know, in a group of 20, I don't know how it is in gravel, and maybe you can speak to this, but on the road, if you were in a break of 20 or just a group of 20, nobody would be happy with that many riders, right? So that group just starts to attack itself constantly people are launching attacks up the climbs and sometimes you know if you can get in a small breakaway even if you know it's not going to last at least you have control over the the pace and the effort a little bit more um you can right. go hard where you want to and you can you know kind of keep it steadier is that is that something that you consider in these races um or maybe like you could speak to um you know, like what the dynamic was in that front group. Like, are people happy with a group of 20? Yeah, I think that was absolutely the case at Mid-South. So from what I heard, so when I was in the main pack, we were doing exactly what you were saying, where we're kind of chilling for most of the time, and then maybe we hit a steep climb and somebody just sends it up the climb full gas and everyone follows. So uh, it's it's not a steady effort by any means. Um you know, so if you're not, if you're the kind of rider who struggles with that, you'd probably struggle being in the main group. Whereas when, when Chase and I were working together, you know, uh, it was a much more steadier effort. I mean, sure, I'm letting him pull and then he's letting me pull. So when, when one of, when either one of us are pulling, we're going a little bit harder than when we're in the draft, but for the most part, it's steadier. And then also what I heard from the main group is, is at mile 60 ish when you kind of go into this Creek bed and then have to come out of the Creek bed and run for a little bit. Uh, it sounded like that, uh, that main group, there were, there was a big move that happened, uh, with like Payson leading the charge there. And, and, um, it sounded like a lot of people burned a lot of matches to try to get back up there after after that happened. Whereas our we went through the creek kind of just just more of a steady effort. Um, so yeah, what you're what you're saying definitely holds true for this race. Um, I don't know if it would for every gravel race, but for this race for sure. How many people so how often Dylan? At the end of the race, like by the end, how many people were left? And so people just coming out because they're like, you know, platting or crashing. Yeah. So Cole soloed with five miles to go and crossed the line solo. Uh, 
And then behind him, I think it was a sprint finish of maybe nine or ten guys. And um, and and then it was and then it was like you know uh, solo people behind that you know who had gotten dropped from the main group just coming in sort of one by one after that and I was one of those people. So Dylan, what do you like? What makes gravel different or unique from road racing, where you can see some of the, like you don't really hear of a guy going solo with five miles to go and, and making it stick in a road race. Um, <clears throat> do you think it's like team tactics because there's a lack of team tactics in gravel racing for the most part mm. uh, that, you know, warrants that type of, uh, you know, attack working, um, mm-hmm. you know, or like just in general, like how, how do you see the dynamics of gravel racing just playing out differently in than road racing? Yeah, I mean, I don't really... Uh, to be honest uh, on paper that move that Cole did I don't I don't think it should have worked but it he obviously timed it very well um uh it could have just been one of those situations where he went off the front and then everybody's you know you're so close to the finish that no one wants to burn a match literally right before you have to sprint so everybody's just kind of looking at each other and they're like you pull no you pull um because there's no reason why a group of 10 riders shouldn't be able to chase down one guy, right? But um, it's kind of like no one wants to work at that point. I think that's probably what happened, although I wasn't there, so I can't, I can't tell you definitively. But um, you- When I talked to him after the race at the awards thing, because, because I was there. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, your at crown. the podium. Yeah, right. Um, First of all, well, yeah, I talked to him about how the race played out, and he said that there were a lot of attacks happening at that point, and he 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 sensed like a lull. So I think you know it's that whole idea of like attack when everybody's hurting. Mm-hmm. I think that's what kind of happened. Like a lot of people had been attacking, nothing was going. Everybody sat up for a second, and that's when he hit it. And it sounds like he hit it really hard. And so uh, there could have been a sense of like everybody was hurting. And so it was just a really good timed, timed interval. But um, I also want to say, like, that guy's got um, – he's, like, really down to earth. Like, like when I talked to him at the – right before the, like, award ceremony, he was asking me about my race and, like, uh, was talking to my wife, CJ, and, like, said our kid was really cute. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'd have if, – if, if that was – I don't, well, I don't want to name you anybody. You won, dude. Specific, what do you mean? But, <laughs> so you but, were I like mean, dunking on people after you <laughs> You were like, get away from me. I don't care about your race. No, I mean, like, he just <laughs> seemed like real humble, genuine. I don't know if it's just because he's younger or what, but I, I left I left the, the venue that, that day thinking, man, that Cole Patton guy, like, he's, the, he's like the real deal. Like, he's a nice – he was a nice guy, like – if he hadn't won the race, I don't think I would have known that he had won the race because he wasn't like flaunting in any way at all. Um, and I think some of the other gravel riders do kind of walk around with that persona of 
big time, and uh, and I don't like that. And mm. I, you know, shots fired. There's been times. There's been times when I'm like in not you, Dylan. There's been times. No, when I wasn't I'm like, saying shots fired at me. I was saying shots <laughs> fired at other gravel racers. There's been times <laughs> when I'm like I'm in the breakaway with these dudes, and something happens, like I flat. And then after the race, they talk to me like they don't even know who I am. And I'm like, bro, we just rode 100 miles together. Like, I was right there. <laughs> and so it's just like, I don't know. I was really impressed. I even, I even shot him a message after the race and said, hey, man, like, you seemed really humble and genuine. Uh, stay that way. Because <laughs> um, I thought it was really refreshing. The real question of the whole podcast, this, this might actually need to be the title. Has gravel racing gotten too big for its britches? Um, yeah, this is like, this is a debate that keeps raging on in gravel racing. It's like, if you take gravel racing too seriously, it's, it's not cool or something. Um, I don't know. I kind of push back against that. I don't see what, why people get so butthurt when people start taking gravel racing seriously or when pro racers sign up for gravel races. Or I remember there was a huge controversy when EF was going to do unbound a couple of years ago. People were like, oh, you know pro roadies taking over gravel i mean it just it just brings more people to gravel i don't see what what the issue is and if you know if some people want to take it seriously and ride fast that's not taking away anything from somebody who wants to just have fun at the race you know so yeah, I, I don't pros, really i don't really see pros what the issue are, is. pros are people too you know <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah they also want to enjoy the grab grab yeah, I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that it's not a pro showing up and taking the race seriously and wanting to win and being competitive is not taking away from your experience of having a fun time out there and trying to finish if that's the kind of rider that you are. Um, so I don't really know what what the I don't know where this complaining is coming from. Like gravel is being ruined by this or gravel's being ruined by that. It's like gravel's not being ruined. It's fine. Well, well we've, it, heard it, we've heard it first from Dylan, Dylan Johnson himself uh-huh. that gravel is still cool. <laughs> <laughs> and to go to, to, to Drew's point, I mean, you kind of said it jokingly, but um, the pros or the elites are there for their own experience too. And their experience is to race super hard and try and win the race. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the experience they're trying to get out of it. So like, why shouldn't they get to experience the race the way that they want to? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, gravel is trying really hard to just be this like all inclusive, all welcoming environment. But to do that, you literally have to welcome the entire spectrum then, um, which is going to be the pros racing at the front and the people riding with a six pack of PBR in the back um, <laughs> and everything in between. Yeah. 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 I started behind a teddy bear. <laughs> there's a guy dressed up in a teddy bear costume i, I saw that in your video yep i started behind <laughs> was it hot out that there what was the weather like i mean i know it snowed the previous day you said but uh yeah, I think I was it was gonna like mention 28 that. degrees at the starting line i made a very poor decision so and this was going to be one of my like takeaway lessons is to like in a certain sense, like don't overthink things. Cause I'm not a runner, but I dressed for the run perfectly. Cause I had ran at 25 degree weather this winter and I had tested out like what clothes would be sufficient for that amount of like that temperature. So I knew exactly what I was going to wear for the run at what temperature. And so I was dialed there. Like I ran in shorts 
I didn't wear gloves. I didn't wear like thermal socks because if you do that, I found out you get blisters and I still got blisters on my feet anyways, but it would have been way worse if I had tried to wear thick socks. So I wore normal socks, no gloves, and then just a long sleeve base layer with a t-shirt on top. So, um, yeah, pretty minimal, but you get really hot when you run. So I knew, okay, yeah, it's snowing. Yes, it's 20 degrees, but I know I was going to get hot as soon as we started. So it was like perfect. But for the run, for the ride the next day, I showed up and looked at my phone and it, it said that the temperature was like just below 30, but the real feel was 19. And I think I let that get in my head because I decided to put on it another jacket right before the start um and like raced with that jacket on and i was like sweating within 30 minutes like drenched in sweat i had to unzip it which i was thinking the whole time i hope dylan doesn't see me because he's going to give me a hard time because this is like this is like 10 watts right here of just my watts are just flying off with my jacket right now but i was so hot that i'm like i can't keep this thing zipped up so i had to unzip it and then as soon as we got to the first like oasis thing i took it off and threw it and i'm like it was almost to the point where like, I don't even care if I get it back. I just, I can't race a hundred miles in this jacket. I did get it back, but, um, I just a bad call on my part. Like I'm an experienced cyclist. I should have just looked at the temperature and said, okay, 30 degrees. This is what I need to wear instead of thinking, wow, I'm cold. I need another jacket. So, so Drew, so I'm curious. So, uh, like with your extensive cyclocross background, you're used to riding and Andrew too. I mean, this is actually relevant for probably all of us, but, um, you're used to riding in inclement weather, lower temperatures, you know, fall time, winter time. Do you keep like a journal or log of like, Hey, this is what I wore on this day. And it was this temperature, these conditions and like whether like that clothing or gear like worked out well, or like was too hot or too cold. Do you guys do anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think it's mostly mental notes. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I definitely try and keep those things in mind. And, um, you know, as the cycle cross season rolls on, for instance, you definitely start to like accumulate lessons in your head. And so by the time you get to the end, you are, you know, better prepared than um, you are at the beginning. And one thing I'll say too about dressing is, um, you know, oftentimes you can tell kind of like where your fellow races are mentally on the start line because, <laughs> As you get towards um, the end of the season, you'll see some people who are like clearly overdressed, which is uh, an indication to me, and it almost always means that they are they're too cracked to be uncomfortable at the start line, uh, <laughs> and so so they'll mm -hmm. be overdressed. Um, you know, whereas you know, a lot of times the guys who are there to win, you know, maybe they're not, um, you know. You can never really be overdressed uh, just rolling up to the line, but you know, once they give us one or two minutes to go and they start taking stuff off, usually the people who are wearing a little bit less know that they're going to race hard for the full duration. Um, but cyclocross is is obviously a, a bit different. It's you're going hard the whole time, right? So and you know that. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is is always like what you wear in your hands. I feel like that's like kind of the most contentious thing. I almost feel like I could wear anything from like a, just like a pure skin suit to like a, maybe a long sleeve skin suit or skin suit and base layer. And it's like the, the body is going to like thermoregulate, I, I think pretty well regardless. But the thing that is not getting a lot of blood flow is your hands and cycle cross. You need to have that 
you know, good control over the, the levers. So that's, that's so the I've, tricky I've, part. I have two more things to add about the weather. Um, first, first of all, this is probably the more important one is, is stay positive because, uh, and I'm not about to like be a motivational speaker right now, but I think this is important because, um, I had, I had a couple athletes that I was talking to leading up to this event, talk about the weather in Oklahoma and how it was seventies all week. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the temperature dropped down into the thirties and then Sunday it was right back into the seventies. So literally for the three days of the race, two days of the race, it was like this free, these freezing cold conditions. And there were people texting me before the race, like, Oh, I'm just dreading it. Like, why is the weather got to be so bad? And, uh, and yeah, I would have loved for it to be seventies too, but I also know like being negative and being upset that the weather's cold, wasn't going to be advantageous to me and my performance whatsoever. So I actually went to Oklahoma having left my house thinking, well, I'm a cyclocross racer. I love racing in the cold. I probably have an advantage over most of these other guys who just race gravel and mountain bike. So I went there thinking like, oh, I have an advantage because I know how to race in the cold. And so I tried to, I tried to do my best of taking something that was probably negative and, and twisting it into this positive. I think that's just important to do because like showing up on a start line or even just traveling to a race, dreading something or being negative is, is just not going to help performance. And then another more just practical uh, piece of advice that I obviously didn't take for myself is um, whatever kind of jackets you do start with, try to make whatever they are small enough to where if you do have to take it off, you can ball it up and put it in another pocket because that's normally my strategy is I'll start with a vest. Almost every workout I do around my house, I'll start with a vest if I'm like a little iffy on the temperature and I can always just take that vest off and, and ball it up and put it in a pocket. And I had my vest on and everything and I was ready to go. And then at the last second I put this winter jacket on and I can't take that off. Like there was no way this winter jacket was going into a pocket. And so I had to leave it on. And I was thinking, and I watched, th I wanted to watch three dudes unzip their, their like really thin lightweight jackets and ball it up and put it in their pocket. And I'm like, I'm an idiot. Why did I put <laughs> this thing on? So if you're going to wear an extra layer, make sure it's small enough to where you can stuff it in a pocket when you, when you get hot. Yeah. It's always a, it's, <laughs> it's like, you have to remember that you're trading you know, maybe whatever, five minutes of, of comfort for being mm -hmm. too hot for six hours, right? Yeah, like that's, absolutely. Like people, I, I feel like you probably knew in the back of your head, you're like, well, I'm, I'm cold right now. Yep. <laughs> so let, let me, let me put this jacket on. Yeah. I was, and, and, and to, and even to your point about like, you're so cracked on the line, that makes total sense because I was completely cracked on the start of the hundred mile race. Like I literally could barely walk that morning. I could barely get my leg over the bike. And luckily, like you get on the bike and I've done that for long enough to where like, okay, it's not so bad once I was pedaling, but literally, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I felt better after the hundred mile race than I did when I woke up that morning. Like I could walk smoothly after the 100 mile race. Cause I guess my legs were just loosened up. The muscles weren't as tight, but when I got out of bed that morning, it was like, I think I almost fell over it. Like to try to put my socks on was just un unbearable. I'm like pulling my bibs on. It was just like, so every time I had to bend my knees, it was just like excruciating. So if you wake up and you're really sore, what the doctor orders is a uh, hundred miles gravel. 
There's like, a, there's like a like a vibrational effect that like loosens you up. I I, <laughs> I mean I think there's so much truth to that. I a couple years ago um, I did like this personal challenge where I tried to run a sub five minute mile, uh, and I'm not a runner at all. And then the next day I tried to go out and do um, like an out and back on this infamous trail in or this famous trail in in South Dakota um, called the Mickelson Trail, and it was like supposed to be like a 225 mile day. Um, I only made it like 185 miles cause I ran out of daylight, but I, I woke up that morning and I felt terrible. Like everything was super tight. Um, hip flexors were tight. I was like having low back pain by the time I finished riding for like 12 hours that day. I like, I felt unbelievable. It was like, it was incredible. I was like, everything was firing. I was like, just felt so loose and so good. It was like, all I needed was a 12 hour recovery ride. Yeah, no, I didn't feel great after the ride. All I said was that I felt better than I did before. <laughs> I well, still feel better. I mean, yeah, I still felt like garbage, but it was better than before. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, hey, so let's uh, let's transition a little bit away from mid south because we wanted to talk a little bit about what the rest of the gravel season looks like. Um, mid south is kind of the kickoff to gravel, if you will. Uh, it's kind of the first big gravel event of the season. Um, I know for sure, Dylan, you've got some more gravel races coming up. So can you just let us know like what the rest of your gravel season looks like mm-hmm. um, and and how those races might differ from the Mid-South? Yeah, so, I mean, my big goal this year is going to be the Lifetime Grand Prix. And actually, the first race um, of the Lifetime Grand Prix is a mountain bike race. It's the Sea Otter Classic in April. So obviously that'll be very different because it's on a different bike and it's, you know, it's mountain biking. Um, uh, but as far as, as far as gravel races coming up, um, I mean, probably the biggest gravel race on the calendar is unbound. Um, and then also, uh, I'll be doing the four BWR races. So, how how those races differ i i think that unbound is very similar to mid-south in terms of terrain the only difference is it's twice as long so unbound if it was 100 miles could very easily come down to a 10 person sprint finish just like mid-south did um except that it's twice as long so that's twice the distance for people to get dropped and in that second half a lot of people get dropped because they they underestimate the distance Um, some of the BWR races, uh, can be quite a bit different just because there's such a variety of terrain. Um, there's a lot of road, uh, there's gravel, but then almost all of them throw in single track too. So the single track really splits things up. Um, there's usually more elevation gain. So you're probably not going to see a lot of those come down to a sprint finish and it's going to be more selective. Um, yeah, like like for example, the 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 BWR San Diego race has has a little bit of everything. It's mostly road, but it's also got single track and gravel, and there's a massive climb at the end. Um, so I don't I don't see any of those playing out the same way. Uh, I I think I talked to Pete Stetna at the finish, and I was asking him how his race went, and he he was like, oh yeah, you know, it was a road race, very tactical sprint finish. Um, typical road race. So I think he got seventh place, which, you know, you'd, you'd expect a guy like him to do a lot better, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a great sprint. So it's probably not surprising that a race like that, that comes down to a sprint finish, uh, 
that's where he'd end up. But then, you know, you take a race like BWR San Diego, that's, that's almost like a perfect course for him. Massive climb at the end. Um, he's just got an insane watts per kilo and, and he can power away from people. It seems like a lot of these gravel races finish in a... Go ahead, Andrew. It seems like a lot of these gravel races have flat finishes. Like just as as like a like a gravel spectator, it seems like they almost always finish in like a little rural downtown. So, are are there some gravel races out there then that do have like a like a summit finish? So style? B, yeah, BWR San Diego is not a summit finish, but there is a massive a massive climb at the end, and then you descend you descend back into the start finish. So. That's not a summit finish, but it is a, you know, it's it's a climbing finish, you know, climb and descent finish. Uh, yeah, a lot of the Midwest gravel races, it, it's rolling terrain the entire time, and then you finish in a town, and it's it's fairly flat. I think that, you know, if it was paved the whole time and it was a road race, uh, it'd be what you, you know, <laughs> if you looked at it, you know, if you're watching the Tour de France and, and you looked at the profile, it'd be... The commentators would be like, oh, this is a day for the sprinters, right? That's what they'd say. Um, I think the only thing that the, the thing about gravel is that the terrain kind of, you know, you're riding on on rough terrain and that kind of makes it harder. It makes it a little bit harder to draft. Um, speeds are a little bit slower. So it's not like you're going to, when I say sprint finish, it's not like it's going to be a peloton sprinting it's going to be a select group so 10 people a 10 person sprint finish is a big sprint finish for a gravel race but it's not uncommon for it to be a three person sprint finish or a you know something like that yeah i think uh isn't crusher and the tusher a mountaintop finish i want yeah. to say it actually, yeah, actually finishes at the so. top of cold to crush mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the official name <laughs> yeah how do we feel about uh, there was a, a local race called the Dust Bowl 100, um, the first 100-mile gravel race in Indiana. Um, I, I did it last year. But what do we think? And they did this there. They did like a cyclocross finish where like the last half mile was was on grass through some turns. No barriers, but they could have very easily put some barriers in there. And I think Southern Cross does this as well. It's basically a gravel race with a little bit of a technical finish. Mm-hmm. I personally love that because if it were to come down to a sprint, I mean, I'm not a sprinter either, but if it comes down to like a half a lap on a cross course, let's go. Like, I'm yeah. all about that. Barry Roubaix sort of has like a, almost like a, a crit style finish. Yeah. There's like a, there's a couple of turns in town and I think it's, I think it's like 200 meters to the line uh, from the last corner, which is mm-hmm. like a sprinter's dream, right? And that's that's actually the only big gravel race that I've ever done, and I was like sixth or seventh there maybe. They're changing um, it this year. Well, I'm disappointed it's gonna, it's to gonna be that. A, it's going to be a straight run-in, and then it kicks up a little bit for the for the 63-mile race. I'm doing well, it in two weeks. Yeah, well, that's cool, but... Yeah, should be better. <laughs> you know, I was... Um, I don't remember what happened. I think... I think the Panaracer team destroyed me with their tactics. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, ended up with some guys off the front. But previewing the race, I was looking at that finish as like a decent crit racer and more of a sprinter. 
and I was licking my chops. Mm-hmm. The whole day I was just thinking, you know, we all, you know, and that's a relatively short gravel race, right? And it's it's pretty fast, so it's that that is that is one for the sprinters maybe, but it wasn't meant to be. Yeah, I would I would for the most part a pure sprinter is not going to win a gravel race because you you need to be fit enough to make the selection for the lead group, and it is pretty select. Uh, it's not like I said, it's not going to be a peloton. It's going to be probably ten people or less, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, having a decent sprint finish is actually can actually be fairly important in gravel racing. Sweet, guys. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. Thanks Sweet. for uh, bringing some insight, and we'll, uh, we'll catch you guys soon. All right. See ya. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!